The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 193 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. Oh my gosh, we have a wonderful episode today. Our guest is John Gaspard. He is the author behind the Eli Marks Mystery Series. Uh, it's a great series, uh, one that I'm I, I'm new to, but so excited for. Uh, it's a series about a guy in the uh, magician's world. And when I say magician, we're not talking Harry Potter. We're not talking sorcery and you know that kind of magic, you know, spells and such. We're talking about show magic, uh, up on a stage performance art. And this is a uh, a guy, Eli Marks, who is in that world and keeps coming across mysteries. He's thrust into these situations in each book, and. Uh, yeah, he, it's up to uh, Eli to solve the issue reluctantly, uh, from what I understand. But it's uh, it's a fantastic series. I've been able to hear some of it now, and you can hear more about it. There are seven books so far just in the series itself, plus a few spinoffs and uh, many more books to come. We're going to be hearing all about that from, uh, from Mr. Gaspard. We're also going to hear about his love and appreciation for the magic arts, and uh, even though he is not a performer... Plus, we're going to touch on some of his other tongue-in-cheek titles that <laughs> you are sure to love, especially if you're a fan of classic titles. Uh, plus, John has a very good podcast that I've been able to listen to a few episodes now so far. It's uh, it's called Behind the Pages. It's the Eli Marks Mystery Podcast. And each episode, he and a buddy, they discuss something in the magic world. They do a little interview, and then you get a like a whole chapter from the Eli Marks Mystery, one of the books. And it's fantastic. I've listened to several episodes now since recording this. Uh, listened in on uh, his conversation about Harry Anderson and uh, the interview with Dick Cavett, which, I mean, oh my gosh, these guys were big-time idols of mine growing up in the 70s and 80s. So this was really cool to hear this. And, you know, I'm going to have links to all of this in the show notes. So, uh you need to make sure you uh, you click that link. Uh, basically, it's it's John's website has the links for all of this, but I'm going to make sure you are able to get in, in there and see everything. All of that's coming up here in just a few minutes, so stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, uh, let me start with an announcement that coming up October 1st and 2nd, I will be uh, I will have a booth at the uh, it's called the Berg Fest <laughs> in Warrensburg, Missouri. It's their downtown festival that's going to be going on. Lots of vendors there, lots of uh, other stuff uh, being sold, and music, uh, beer tent. Uh, going to be a lot of fun, honestly. And this is going on, like I said, October 1st and 2nd. I will be there. I'm going to be selling some of my books. I'm going to be showcasing a bunch of my episodes that we've had, and uh, hopefully talking to a few authors that may be in the area. Uh, so make sure you come on down and, uh, and visit. It's uh, the Friday the 1st, uh, there in the afternoon and up into the evening. And then on Saturday the 2nd, I'm there basically all day hanging out at my booth. So so if you come to town, make sure you uh, stop by and say hello. 
Uh, writing is going well. I've uh, just about finished um, Bandit Rising. The uh, I've done the last of my edits. Uh, I'm on the last of my edits on the last two chapters. It's just that final, you know, uh, just making sure that I've really punched up, and <laughs> pun intended, the uh, the finale uh, between Bandit and the uh, his nemesis in this and. Uh, it's I'm just just making sure that that's how I want it before I turn it over, but I should be turning that over to my beta readers in the next couple of days. So that's very exciting to me. And then uh, then it'll be on to book two for me while I wait for that to come in. Of course, I'm doing all that writing on my favorite writing software, Scribner. They've made it so much easier for me to cut and paste and move chapters around. You know, uh, I, I can just flip chapters. Just picking them up and dropping them, and then cutting and pasting scenes from one chapter to another is so easy. It's been so helpful, and it's helped me break up the ending of it, where I'm going from scene to scene, from character to character. They've all got, there's many characters at the end of it here, and they all have things happening all at once. And it's Scrivener has it on lockdown on how to help you get this so that it's moving smoothly. Hey, check out our ad on how you can save 20%. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. Meanwhile, I've been enjoying my favorite new coffee from Writer's Block Coffee. Uh, they have three delicious flavors. There's their signature blend, the Writer's Block, uh, which is fantastic. And you can actually order a sample of that if you go to their website and uh, enter your, your email. Uh, the Deadline Dark is the dark brew. And the Whiskey Barrel Aged Blend, which is my all-time favorite. My wife loves it as well, so uh, we, have, we bought a big bag of that, and we're, uh, we're enjoying that pretty frequently right now. Uh, it's fantastic. I cannot wait for the... Uh, <laughs> I can't wait for the weather to cool down and sit on my back deck with some of that to, uh, to enjoy, but it's, it's great coffee. Uh, we are an affiliate to the company, so if you follow that link in the show notes, it'll go right to my page. And if you use the coupon code SAMPLECHAPTER, you save 10%, and I get a little kickback on that as well if you make an order. So hit that link in the show notes and uh, get yourself right on over there, and you can even set up a uh, monthly auto ship of your, uh, your favorite blend. Getting on over to our podcast friends, I want to start with Pop Goes the Culture Network, home to about half a dozen different shows, all of them pop culture related, and uh, I want to invite you to go check out the Multiverse Tonight with Thomas Townley. Uh, he does a great show, uh, lots of, what's nice is he's really, he doesn't bring in a lot of outside information, he's basically reading the news with a little bit of insight into each of those stories, uh, so, but it's basically, it's a quick show, and it's it's great, there's like really no reason not to listen to it. 
if you are a pop culture fan. So click that link in the show notes to get on over to Pop Goes the Culture Network and uh, yeah, check out the multiverse tonight. Um, on a, uh, I guess this would be a sad note, Project Entertainment Network that we've been with for about a year and a half now and I've been following for like five years. The network itself is kind of in the air. We don't know what the future is for sure as of me recording this right now. Many of the podcasts within, we've all agreed we're going to continue to share each other's work. So I do want to make sure and uh, plug one of them here in just a second. But once we know what's happening with the network, I will pass that on and, and we'll see whether this show continues to be a part of the network or or we'll see what happens. But meanwhile... You should check out Monster Attack, and uh, here's a little bit of information about them. This is Jim Adams from Monster Attack. Hey, if you remember that monster movie from your childhood that got it all started for you, the one that really got you interested in monster movies, horror movies, sci-fis, and cult films, then you're going to want to listen every week to Monster Attack. We look at some of our favorite monster movies from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. With new episodes uploaded every Monday, it's Monster Attack. Exclusively on the Project Entertainment Network. All right, everybody. Don't forget to also go into social media and follow all of my podcast friends and business affiliates and sponsors. Uh, you can follow us all on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's a great way to always know what's going on. But if you are not a social media person and you would like to reach out to the show, you can do so via email at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> If you'd like to give me a call, you can leave me a voicemail by calling 660-851-1146. And we have a fantastic voicemail that came in very recently. I wish I had time to add it to today's show, but I, I just I haven't had a chance to capture it and bring it over. Uh, so stay tuned for that next week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add that to it. It's a great voicemail that I cannot wait to share with you. It's so good. Meanwhile, why don't you all use that voicemail or email or check out my Twitter page where I have a poll going on. Episode 200 is coming. What do you want to do? Should we do giveaways like last time? Should we do a big event? Reach out to me. Let me know what you want to do. Uh, drop me an email. Respond to that Twitter post. Or give me a call and leave me a voicemail what you want. And uh, we'll see what we can do. Uh, episode 200, it's only seven more episodes after today. It's coming up. That'll be here in, like, uh, November. So let me know right away. Meanwhile, let's get on over to our interview with the wonderful, the amazing, the incredible, John Gaspar. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Welcome to another magical episode of the Sample Chapter podcast. This week, we are going to be discussing how can a non-magician write best-selling mysteries about being a magician? Well, that's a question for our guest, John Gaspard, and uh, we're going to be hearing all about the Eli Marks mysteries. Mr. Gaspard, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. It's so great to be here. I'm so happy to have you here, and oh my gosh, you have opened up a whole world to me that uh, I was previously unaware of, and hopefully there's new people around the world checking this out that are also being exposed to this Eli Marks mysteries and uh, this magical world that you have created. Well, I, I hope so. I, 
I always worry about using the word magical because people immediately um, jump to like Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I uh, before I decided to self-publish and was trying to work with traditional publishers, um, they just didn't get it. Uh, and as it turned out, I was able to find a hybrid publisher who did. But e- Eli Marks is a working magician. He's a guy who does birthday parties and corporate events and trade shows. And um, so he's not Harry Potter. He's just a normal guy who has a few tricks in his pocket that most people don't. And and that's what he uses to uh, sometimes get himself into trouble and usually get himself out of trouble. <laughs> I like it. It's a unique take on the whole thing. And uh, you get the mysteries. And, and along the way, you've impressed a teller, a pen and teller who loved the book and wrote you a really great blurb for it. You know, he did. And uh, it was it was really surprising. Uh the, uh, I try to open each book with a quote from a magician, and I, I got permission f- uh, from him. I got uh, a friend of a friend knew him, and I emailed her, and she emailed him. I said, this is the quote I want to use, and he wrote back and said, go ahead. And when the book was done, as I always do, uh, I mailed a copy off to the person who gave me the quote for the opening mm-hmm. uh, and was very surprised to get an email uh, a couple weeks later that said, uh, John, thanks so much for sending the book. I was uh, uh, in the mood for mystery the other night and sat down and read it. And uh, you fooled me. I thought that X was the killer and was actually Y. And what I really like is that you got the life of a magician uh, down. This is this is what our lives are like. It's accurate, which is the highest praise you can get. You know, uh, arguably one of the best magicians in the world saying that uh, a non-magician has written a book that captures the life of a magician that's that you know you can pretty much retire at that point <laughs> fantastic so now how how did you get this insight are you are you a former magician yourself i am not uh, i am not even a magician now although there are <laughs> those who say that i know so much that i technically am um i was looking to do a series i love mysteries i love uh, uh mystery series i'm a big fan of lawrence block and his Bernie Rodenbar burglar series uh, and wanted to do something along those lines. And as it, I realized that I, I have uh, more friends who are magicians than the average person. In fact, I think the average person probably doesn't even have one friend who's a magician. I had three or four and they're very interesting people. They're generally really, really smart um, because they're performers. They're a little wacky. Uh, and I, I hadn't seen anyone I had done that yet. Uh, following uh, a working magician who stumbles into these things in order to portray it properly. I had to do a lot of research. In fact, the first book in the series, the ambitious card uh, was probably the most research heavy because I had to get up to speed on the day-to-day life uh, and problems of a magician. Plus there's a lot of psychics in the book uh, or mentalists and psychics. So I had to learn about them as well. Uh, So there's a big learning curve and then I have to keep kind of filling the hopper, as they say, learning more stuff uh, as we go along. We're seven books in, uh, and I'm still, you know, listening to podcasts and reading interviews and reading books and just trying to to get the vernacular right so that when I do sit down to write something that's going on with Eli, uh, a magician reading it will say, yes, that's correct. Uh, and a, a normal person reading it will go, I guess that's correct, but I don't really care because the rest of it's fun. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so what was what was the inspiration behind that? Was it because you had uh, all these friends that uh, you thought, what, what about a murder mystery with a magician? Yeah, it was that combined with the fact that 
uh, because I had friends who were magicians and they're showing me tricks and I'd hear the names of these tricks and they're all uh, evocative names, uh, uh-huh. the ambitious card, the bullet catch, the miser's dream, the linking rings, the floating light bulb. Those are all really good titles. Uh, that's kind of, you know, it'll grab your eye and you go, oh, well, what that's, what's that about? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're all so different that uh, you can kind of structure mysteries around them or structure the mystery. So there has something to do with them. A lot of people, when they think of magicians, they think, oh, it's just card tricks. And that is admittedly a huge portion of magicians only do card tricks, some do cards and coins, but then you get magicians who do what's called a cabaret show, which is with larger effects. So there's a lot of other props and things they deal with. And I thought, well, that'll keep it interesting. They also work in a lot of different environments. Uh, they're unlike, for example, the Bernie, Bernie Rodenbar stories where he is a, a bookseller and a burglar. Um, those stories are driven by the fact that he's generally involved in a burglary of some kind and he goes somewhere to do something. The mysteries don't come to him in the bookstore. And the same is true of Eli. You know, he goes in the ambitious card to uh, to do a TV show and the guy who is with him on the TV show, who's a mentalist, uh, ends up murdered. Uh, or he goes to a club in London called the Magic Circle and somebody dies there. Uh, there's a there's always a reason for him to be out and about and meeting different people. And so I knew that I could keep it fresh that way. Oh, fantastic. And you're right about those uh, those titles. I mean, that's that's those are fantastic titles that definitely will uh, will catch your attention. Do you think uh, are, are you one of those writers who the title of a book or a name in this case comes to you and you're like, that would be a good book. Now, what could that be about? Um, no, it, a lot of times it's more um, getting the idea for the mystery, which is always the hardest part. What is the, what are the clues they're going to provide a fair mystery read for the reader? Uh, what is that? And then sort of looking through the, the bag of tricks of what magicians do uh, to, to figure out what's a good trick for it. For example, uh, one of the books in the series is called The Floating Light Bulb, in which a it's a pretty clear title, a light bulb that is lit, uh, apparently connected to nothing is floating in front of the magician and he makes it fly out over the audience and back. Um, that particular trick is a stage show trick, meaning you need to have a stage and you need to have people seated in an audience. It isn't something you do one-on-one with somebody at a party or something. So as soon as I realized that Eli was going to be involved in a murder that took place as part of a stage show, I thought, well, let's look at the tricks that are going to be the best for him to deal with mm. there. And, and that's a tough trick. The floating light bulb uh, isn't done that often because it isn't easy. And it, re- it would be a, a good hurdle for him to have to get over to learn to perform that trick effectively while also trying to solve the mystery of who killed the magician who was doing the show before him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's fascinating though. Well, tell us about Eli Marks, your, your protagonist and hero throughout these series. What makes him uh, driven to solve these mysteries and how does he become so involved in it? Well, I don't know if driven is ever the right word to use with Eli. <laughs> um, Eli's in a unique situation. He's in his early 30s. He's uh, divorced. Uh, he hadn't planned on getting divorced. His wife was an assistant district attorney. 
uh, had an affair with a guy from Homicide and ended up breaking up their marriage and she married him. So now he has a connection with not only the district attorney's office, but also the Homicide Department, a connection he doesn't really care for. Um, his parents died when he was quite young, so he was raised by his uncle, a guy named Harry Marks, who uh, is a world-class magician. Uh, he's revered among all magicians. He uh, runs a little magic shop in South Minneapolis uh, that I made up called Chicago Magic because it's on Chicago Avenue in Minneapolis. Uh, and that's where Eli grew up. And so he sort of became a magician by default, but he is anything but driven. Uh, he's a little on the lazy side. Um, and he's also often wrong. Uh, someone pointed this out to me after the seventh book. They said, you know, he's about he's wrong about as often as he is right when it comes to solving the murders. And he thinks he solved it and then ends up putting himself in a worse situation. But he does have a magician's mind when he puts his mind to it. And he does have a, a weird way of looking at things uh, and an understanding of when a trick is being done, when someone is doing something where they're misdirecting you, uh, which is often the case with a, a murder. Someone wants you to think it's A when it's actually B. So his mind works that way. Uh, and he is, as the series has gone on, he's grown a bit. Uh, he's gotten remarried. He's become uh, a much better magician and is starting to become what's called a magic consultant, where not only does he do his own show, but he also consults on other shows. So he's, you know, He's a, a charming, if a flawed individual. He's often his own worst enemy. Oh, okay. Well, that's fantastic. And I like the idea of a uh, reluctant hero, uh, as the case may be, with uh, with Eli. So he's kind of pulled into the mystery, whether he wanted to or not. So. Exactly. Yeah, it, 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 it gives you some instant conflict there. <laughs> and you have seven books in the series so far. Uh, what's uh, are, Is the series done or do you have more coming? No, there's more coming. I'm working on uh, book number eight. I'm also working on what might end up being a, a collection of short stories. The, the hardest part for me is coming up with the mystery. Um, I like to write a fair mystery where all the clues are laid out so that you, the reader, when you get to the end, uh, it's inevitable, but it's a surprise, which is sort of the basis for a good magic trick. When you get to the end of the magic trick, you go, oh, that surprised me, but how? there's no other way it could have ended up. Um, and, you know, we've all read mysteries where you get to the penultimate chapter and our hero says, I went to the library and did some research and then called everybody together. Uh, and he's learned that a, a key piece of information that you, the reader, don't have. Uh, Agatha Christie loves to do that. Uh, and it isn't fair. So I prefer a mystery, even uh, like an Anthony Horowitz mystery, which is terribly convoluted but is fair. Everything you needed was there. So that's the hardest part to come up with. And once I can get that part nailed, uh, the rest is easy. So I've been trying to write some short stories to sort of get better at writing the mystery part because the short story is, I mean, that's your one and done. You're in, it's the mystery, you're out. And uh, they are, as someone once said, a, a short story is a lot harder to write than a novel. And it's true because you don't have any wiggle room and you can't wander off, and you can't have tangents. Uh, you, you just need to get to the point and, and get in and out. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, later on there will be a book of uh, uh, Eli Mark's short stories. I've got two that I've already put out that I give away for free on the website, and people seem to like those, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting the rest of them out. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and, that, and they look amazing, yeah. and 
sticking with Eli for a moment, you also have a podcast where you discuss the uh, the magic and some of these short stories. Yeah, it's um, it's new this year. It's called Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast. And the idea was um, was to give away uh, give away stuff. That's one of the best ways to get new readers is to give them stuff. And it occurred to me that I have all seven books. I have wonderful audiobook versions of them. I have a great narrator uh, who really brings them to life. And I thought, well, why don't I just do a podcast that is uh, over the course of one season, you can hear an entire book for free. So there's 24 episodes, 24 chapters. Come, They come out twice a month. Uh, and then to give them what we call the DVD extras, we do an interview uh, every episode with someone who will help uh, bring something in that chapter to life. Generally, these are magicians who will talk about, for example, early on in the ambitious card, there's a magician named Max Molini from the turn of the century who's mentioned. So we have on a guy who tells us, uh, a guy named Steve Cohen, who has a beautiful magic show in New York that he does every weekend. Uh, he talks about Max Molini because he's written a book on him. Or later in the ambitious card, Eli meets with his uncle and his monk, his uncle's cronies, who are a bunch of other aging magicians. And they're all modeled on uh, magicians who were big in the 60s and 70s. And so for that episode, uh, Dick Cavett came on the show. Dick Cavett, the talk show host, mm -hmm. uh, is also a magician. He started out his career as a magician and is still an amateur magician. Wow. And he had on his show uh, some of the top magicians uh, in, in the world. Uh, when his show was on in the 70s. So he's a great expert on who these people were and what it was like working with them. So the idea is if you listen to all 24 episodes of season one, not only do you hear all of the ambitious card, but you also get some background information and some fun interviews with uh, magicians and performers uh, and people who, who know something about the chapter you're listening to. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and check that out. I remember being a huge fan of Dick Cavett when I was younger, back in the 70s and 80s and and then I didn't know what happened to him. So I'm going to have to check this out. Well, he is <laughs> retired uh, and he is still very interested in magic. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is a charming raconteur. Um, the first magician, first professional magician he saw back in Omaha when he was a teenager was another guy from Nebraska named Johnny Carson, who had a <laughs> magic show that traveled around Nebraska. And he was the very first uh, magician, I think, that he talked to. Uh, and then years later... Uh, he ended up writing for Johnny Carson and uh, they were friends until Johnny died. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a really, it, it's the only two part interview we have because uh, the first one uh, is just him talking about his background in magic. And then in the second interview, he gets into talking about the magicians he's had on his show, like Penn and Teller or Ricky Jay or Sly Dini. Um, Steve Martin was on doing magic. Uh, Orson Welles came on and talked about magic. So he's got some great stories about these guys. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, there you go, everybody. You know, I love to share other podcasts that I come across and this is going to be one I'm going to be checking out. We're going to have the links to that uh, along with, uh, with John's uh, website in the show notes as well. So tell us about, you got some other <laughs> fascinating titles in uh, some of your other books here, the Sword and Mr. Stone, Greyhound of the Baskervilles, and oh, Ripper, <laughs> Ripperologists. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Tell us I'll... about some of these other books. All right. Well, the Ripperologists uh, was the first novel I wrote, and I spent a couple of years trying to get it sold uh, and did have a publisher, and then they went under, which was just as well because they weren't very good. <laughs> um, and it, 
uh, it's a, a thriller about someone who's recreating uh, the Jack the Ripper murder spree, which took place in the fall of 1888, and they're recreating it in New York in present day. Uh, and two, what are called Ripperologists, are brought in to help the police figure out what's happening. Ripperologists are experts on the field. Um, like magicians, they are this sort of weird little niche uh, of experts who, to this day, are working on solving uh, who uh, Jack the Ripper was. And they are academics, and they are quirky, and they are smart, and they're interesting. And just about every one of them has a different uh, theory as to who Jack the Ripper was. And in this case, we have two diametrically opposed Ripperologists who are forced to work together to, to try to stop this copycat killer before he um, completes all five of the, what are called the canonical murders. Uh, it's, it's more of a thriller than Eli Marks is a little bloodier, uh, but it's definitely, a, you can see a template there for uh, dealing with a cranky old man and a, and a, and a younger guy and uh, that dynamic. So there's that. Um, the Sword of Mr. Stone is a whole different thing. Uh, I, I'm sure that you've had a lot of authors on who've talked about you have to stick in your genre, you have to stay in your lane. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, good at doing that at all. So uh, years ago, I used to make a lot of low-budget feature films um, and also wrote scripts hoping to sell them to Hollywood. I had a great screenwriting partner, and we wrote a script called The Sword and Mr. Stone, which is about a uh, present-day insurance adjuster who gets pulled into a search for the legendary sword, uh, Excalibur, that gave uh, uh, King Arthur his power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was uh, it's an, an award-winning script. We got flown out to L.A. to have meetings about it. Nothing ever came of it, and it sat in a drawer. And I remember looking and thinking, that's just a good story. It just, we did a good job on the story. Uh, and so I tinkered with it and turned it into a novel. And it's a fast-paced, modern-day, goofy fantasy adventure about a guy who is racing through uh, England and Scotland, uh, pursued by bad guys, um, trying to track down where this sword is. So it's quite uh, apart from what Eli does, but it also has that same sort of sense of humor. Then you get to the Greyhound of the Baskervilles. That's a a whole different thing. Um, My wife and I have for years uh, fostered uh, and adopted retired racing greyhound dogs. They're very, very sweet dogs. Mm. Um, There's organizations set up all around the country and more all around the world to give these dogs homes when their racing careers are over. Um, So they're not just destroyed, but they can go on to have a a long life because generally by age three or four, they're sort of done racing, but they're going to live to be 12, 15 years old. Uh, And they're just sweet, wonderful dogs. They're goofy and uh, I, I recommend anyone who's looking to adopt a dog look to get a greyhound. You're not going to find a better friend. And I just happened to wake up one morning and in my brain, I thought of the Hound of the Baskervilles and I, my brain replaced it with the Greyhound of the Baskervilles. And I thought, well, that's funny. What if the story, which is told from the point of view of Dr. Watson, what if it were told from uh, a greyhound, a pet dog that uh, uh, Sherlock has called Septimus? And he tells the story of when they faced down with the Greyhound of the Baskervilles. Um, and I started just rereading the book, which is in the public domain. And it it made sense. Um, it's all told from Watson's point of view. And with very little change, it became the Greyhound's point of view. Watson is still there because you need a human. Um, it's an ideal book for that because there's that big confrontation at the end is with a dog. And who better to fight a dog than another dog? Uh, and uh, it's just 
it's just quirky and funny, uh, and people seem seem to love it. I kept uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's name on it along with mine because it is ninety percent his writing. I've just shifted things around and uh, changed the point of view a little bit, and also tightened it quite a bit. It was a little a little bit loosey goosey, but it's tighter now. <laughs> and people seem to love that. And so I've started a, an imprint called Greyhound Classics, and our second book came out last year called A Christmas Carl, which is just. <laughs> A Christmas Carol retold from the point of view of what if as payment for something, Jacob Marley was given a a, a greyhound and he dies and Scrooge is left with all of Marley's stuff, including this dog. And (laughs) if you tell the story from what the dog sees, and again, it's 90% Charles Dickens, it's just changing the point of view a bit. Um, That one's fun because I also had some uh, five or six sort of etchings done where I uh, there's there's artwork that everyone will recognize from A Christmas Carol that was done originally back when it came out. Uh, and I found an artist who just took those and put added a greyhound to each one of them. So the book has little etchings in it as well, which is kind of fun. But it's it's just exactly what it sounds like. It's They're called Greyhound Classics because they're classic books that have been shifted to be told from the point of view of a greyhound. <laughs> I can see... Uh... Old man and the Greyhound here coming soon. <laughs> well, you know, I, I haven't found that third one yet, but I've been looking at it. It it, it isn't quite as simple as it sounds because it, it needs to kind of make sense. But it's one of the few things that I've written where uh, I immediately started getting emails from people going, this should be a movie. This should be an animated movie. Uh, <laughs> I want to take this to Netflix. I'm a producer. Can I take it to Netflix? And I said, yeah, go ahead. I mean, nothing's happened, but... Uh, it's just such a cute idea that people really seem to latch onto it. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> it, it had me chuckling right along listening to each of these. <laughs> well, the titles, you know, the Greyhound of the Baskervilles, it's just, it's just adorable. It sings. Yep. It's mm-hmm. got, got its own life. <laughs> yep. Oh my gosh. Well, uh, John, where can people find and follow you? The best place to just go to Eli Marks Mysteries. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S mysteries.com. You'll find uh, everything there that we've talked about. Uh, it, it, they can also go to albertsbridgebooks.com, which is the kind of the master label for everything, including Sword of Stone and all that. That's albertsbridgebooks.com. But if you want to listen to the podcast, uh, that's at elimarksmysteries.com. All right, fantastic. And today, everyone, we've got a uh, we've got a special treat in that uh, John has provided me with. Uh, a sampling from book one of, of uh, the, the Eli Marks Mysteries. Uh, it's called The Ambitious Card. And it says the actual, the audio book that you're going to be hearing from today. Uh, what, do we, what do we need to know to set this up? You know, you really don't need to know anything except that it's about a magician. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's about it. it the, chapter one pretty well explains it. And our narrator, Jim Cunningham, uh, does a real nice job of bringing it to life. I agree. I agree. I'm really enjoying it. And uh, I think everyone listening is going to enjoy this as well. Uh, Mr. Gaspard, thank you so much for uh, joining me. This has been a real delight. Jason, it's really been fun. And I've enjoyed listening to the to your podcast and will continue to do so. Uh, well, thank you very much. The check is in the mail, buddy. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, time for me to step aside and join uh, book one from the Eli Marks Mysteries, The Ambitious Card. Chapter 1. I find it puzzling, don't you? The rabbit, I mean, very puzzling. 
As a magician, I'm accustomed to people asking me about rabbits. However, in this particular instance, I wasn't being queried about your standard pink-nosed adorable bunny suitable for producing out of a hat. My uncle was instead gesturing toward a large statue of a rabbit reclining on the grass. Perhaps five feet tall, the dull bronze artwork gazed out at the cars as they passed by on the Minnehaha Parkway, a look of Mona Lisa-style contentment on its large metallic face. "'Explain this to me if you can,' Uncle Harry continued without waiting for any response from me. "'Is the statue meant to represent an oversized version of a normal-sized rabbit, or was the artist instead attempting to create a normal-sized depiction of a freakishly large rabbit?' I sorted through his questions in my head. "'I guess I've never thought about it,' I finally answered. Harry clucked his tongue. If we understand the context within which he or she was working, then I imagine we'd have a better handle on it. It's never about what they're doing. It's always about why. He gave the rabbit one more penetrating look as we drove past. As a professional magician, these are the questions you should be thinking about, he added in his professional tone. Perhaps it's my imagination, but as he's gotten older, Harry's list of the questions I should be thinking about has grown exponentially. And to be honest, given recent events, I must admit that I haven't really made any attempt to keep up with his list. At this point, I'm probably hopelessly behind. I made a left turn on Chicago Avenue, and we headed away from Minnehaha Parkway, driving the final two blocks home in reflective silence. I pulled into an open parking space across the street from the small shop that serves as both our abode and our business. Chicago Magic is the store, and surprisingly, it's a good 350 miles from the Windy City, nestled instead in a cozy neighborhood in South Minneapolis. The shop has been a fixture near the corner of 48th and Chicago for nearly 50 years. I've called the apartments above it my home on and off for just over 20 years, or since I was about 10. For those of you unwilling or unable to do the math, that would put me in my early 30s. Uncle Harry gathered up the plastic shopping bag that slumped at his feet. The bag was filled to near overflowing with candy bars of all varieties, and not the dreaded fun-size candy bar which Harry loathes. Where's the fun in a candy bar the size of your thumb? That's about as much fun as a poke in the eye, if you ask me. No, these were genuine, full-sized bars, and they would join the other equally large bag we purchased two days earlier in anticipation of the supposed hordes of trick-or-treaters Harry was convinced would be visiting us that evening. Harry is a man who does not like to be caught unprepared, and Halloween fuels his already competitive nature. For years, he's ranted about our business neighbors, the movie theater on one side of the store and the bar on the other, and their alleged stinginess in the matter of dispensing Halloween candy to the neighborhood children. Any business that charges an arm and two legs for a bag of popcorn, he would often say of the movie theater, and then turns around and hands out minuscule candy bars at Halloween... That, to me, is a business with the heart the size of a gumdrop. And don't get me started with that bar, 
he would continue, gesturing toward what is actually a favorite hangout of his. I swear to God, those cheap so-and-sos are handing out ice cubes instead of candy. I've seen them do it. They hold a bowl of something high enough over the kid's head so they can't see inside of it, and then plop, 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 they toss ice cubes into the poor youngster's bag, saying, Enjoy your Snickers bar and happy Halloween, kids. That, if you ask me, is lower than low. Halloween had been a favorite holiday for Aunt Alice, and because this was the first occurrence of the holiday since her passing, I think Harry was overcompensating. I got the sense he was using the delivery of treats to random, roaming, costume-clad kids as a sort of living memorial to her and their 50-plus years together. But I sympathized with the feeling, so when he had insisted on making yet another run to the store that afternoon for more candy, I quickly agreed and even offered to drive. As soon as the car came to a stop across from our shop, he opened the door and got out, turning back to reach in and pick up the bulging bag of candy bars. Aren't you coming in? he asked when he recognized that I hadn't turned off the engine. I shook my head. I've got that show in St. Paul to get to, I said, picking up a Snickers bar that had escaped from the bag and fallen to the seat. I handed it to Harry, and he skillfully slipped it back into the bag, making it vanish from his hand. It was a good trick, but he did it without even realizing he had done it. Force a habit, I guess. Oh, that's right, he said, giving the side of his head a slight tap with his index finger. Thanks for covering me on that show. I'm just not up to it. I understand. No problem, I said, not wanting to make a big deal out of it. He started to close the car door, then ducked his head back down for one last comment. Give him hell, Buster. And then he closed the door. I watched him as he waited for a couple of cars to pass and then tentatively made his way across the street to our shop. He glanced up at the sky as he slipped the key into the front door lock, looking to see if the snow that had been threatening for the last couple of days was any closer to becoming a reality. A few moments later... The door was unlocked, and he disappeared inside. And two seconds after that, a hand turned the sign that hangs in the window around so that it now read, Open. Chicago Magic was open for business and ready for trick-or-treaters. And I had to get to the psychic showdown, a mental cage match, as it was being advertised in St. Paul. But before I go, I thought, where's the harm in a quick interlude? I pulled the car forward about 30 feet, which put me directly across from the shop on the corner, a mere four doors down from Chicago Magic. I pretended to be very interested in something on the car's dashboard, adjusting an invisible knob. And then slowly, oh, so slowly, I turned my head to the left and looked across the street. Bingo. I spotted her immediately, standing by the cash register and talking to a customer. Her face was slightly obscured by her curly brown hair. Then she laughed and tossed her hair back, revealing that sweet, lovely face. She was gorgeous. It was evident even from this distance, clear across the street and through a fog of incense that hung around inside the store like, well, a fog. I watched her for several long moments with what I'm sure was a look of puppy-dog infatuation on my face until I reached a point where I was even starting to creep myself out. I said her name softly, like a sigh. Megan. Then put the car in gear and headed over to St. Paul.
The bluffs that border the riverfront to cross the waterway from downtown St. Paul are famous for their caves. Miles of caverns and circuitous tunnels that cut deep into the tall rocky hills. The best known of these caves, and the only ones open to the public, are the Wabashaw Street Caves, which began their career as a mining site for valuable sandstone before becoming a private Prohibition-era nightclub. The caves have gone through several permutations since that time, finally evolving into a rental space for parties and events. I'd only been there once previously, years before, at a spooky magic show presented by a student of my uncle's. Although the event taught me nothing new about magic, I did learn one thing about the caves that night that has stuck with me ever since. When the lights go out in a cave, it's dark. I mean, dark, dark. Stygian darkness. Darker, as my uncle was fond of saying, than the inside of a nun. It was immediately apparent that darkness wasn't going to be an issue inside the caves that evening as I stepped into the steady flow of people making their way through the large wooden doors that framed the front entrance. The inside of the place was lit up like a crystal chandelier with extra lighting courtesy of a TV crew that had moved in and completely taken over the main room. Inside, t-shirted crew members with headsets and clipboards scurried around as staff in charge of crowd control moved the people through the foyer into the rows of folding chairs that had been set up in the main room. I was instantly reminded that this was a Halloween event when I recognized that many in the crowd had come in costume, ranging from something as simple as a funny hat to one fellow who was dressed like the Gorn Captain, that shabby, shambling lizard from the old Star Trek series. As the crowd slowly shuffled forward around me, I spotted a young woman wearing a black PBS t-shirt, blacker lipstick, a headset, and a determined expression. Excuse me, I said as I lightly tapped her on the shoulder, making the assumption that she wasn't in costume but was in fact in uniform. She turned and looked at me, holding up one finger on her right hand while she pressed her headset closer to her head with her left, trying to hear above all the conversations in the cramped, echoing space. Uh-huh, she said into the mouthpiece. Roger that. She lowered her right finger, giving me the go-ahead to speak. Yes? Hi, uh, I'm Eli Marks. I'm in the show tonight. She quickly paged through the stack of multicolored sheets on her clipboard, then spoke into the mouthpiece again. I've got the debunker with me. Where should I put him? Actually, the term uh, debunker is not one I... She held up that one finger again as she listened intently to her headset. She nodded and then turned and pushed her way through the crowd, glancing back over her shoulder as she did. Follow me, she yelled, and then she dove further into the throng. I excused and pardoned my way through the packed foyer as I did my best to keep the crew member in sight. As we neared the entrance to the main room, she veered to the right, past the restrooms, and then made a left, bringing us into a new room that was literally cavernous. A long bar ran against one wall, and the far end of the room revealed an archway entrance to another similar room. If I was remembering correctly from my one visit to the caves, that cavern connected to another cavern, which in turn connected back to the main cavern, which connected to the foyer we had just left, creating a circle of interconnected caverns. This particular space was currently unoccupied, with the exception of a tall, rail-thin woman with spiky red hair standing by the bar. 
she was digging through what looked like a large fishing tackle box. Next to her were two lights on stands which were directed at a high canvas-backed chair. Ricky Martin screamed Living La Vida Loca from a portable iPod speaker system on the bar. I've got one who's ready for makeup, the crew member barked over the music. He's on last, so no rush. Great, the spiky-haired woman said. What's the time? The crew member looked at her watch, which hung on a braided lanyard around her neck. We go live in 25 minutes, she said as she spun around and headed back the way she had come. As she left the cavern, her hand went up to the headset on her ear and I could hear her say, Debunkers in makeup, and then she was gone. I'm Lauren, the spiky-haired woman said, taking a makeup bib off the chair and gesturing for me to have a seat. Her voice was husky and rich, the distinctive sound of a former or current smoker. I'm Eli, I said as I settled into the chair. She fastened the bib around my neck, yanking and tugging it until it was positioned to her satisfaction. So, Eli, what's a debunker and why do you hate that term so much? She ran a warm hand quickly through my hair and then turned and began rummaging through the tackle box. From my new vantage point, I could see that instead of hooks, worms, and bobbers, the box was full of makeup supplies. Powders, eyeliners, lipsticks, brushes, tubes, and small bottles I couldn't identify were neatly arranged in the box's tiers. How do you know I hate that term? She gave a little laugh. <laughs> body language. They say that 95% of human communication is done via body language. Really? Well... She shrugged. I made up the number, but I stand by the concept. She turned back from the makeup case, having found a shade of powder that pleased her. She placed one hand over my eyes, while the soft, feathery brush in her other hand gave my face a quick dusting. The song on the iPod speaker switched from Ricky Martin to an aria from an opera that I almost recognized. This was either an eclectic playlist or the machine was set on shuffle. So, what's a debunker? she asked again. Well, I said, settling into my well-practiced description, in the world of psychics, mystics, and the supernatural, a debunker is someone who vehemently believes that all otherworldly occurrences are bogus, and they can always be explained by a simple scientific explanation. And that's not what you do? She pushed lightly on my forehead to get me to tip my head back as she deftly applied some powder to my neck. Well, I'd like to think so. Debunkers are often as fanatical as the people they oppose. I've always preferred the term skeptic. And that means what? She replaced the makeup brush in the tackle box and produced a comb and what appeared to be a can of hairspray. That means that I approach each situation with an open mind. I don't immediately assume that every supernatural occurrence isn't simply a natural occurrence that has been misunderstood or faked in some way. Ever come across one that wasn't? Not yet, but I'm keeping an open mind. Well, keep that mind open, but do me a favor and shut those baby blues for just a second. I closed my eyes and heard the hiss of the hairspray and felt the sharp tug of her comb as she attempted to give my unruly mop of hair a bit of well-needed discipline. When I opened my eyes, I was surprised to see a deck of playing cards fanned out in front of my face. Pick a card. A any card. The cards fanned, dipped for a moment, and I recognized Pete's face behind the cards. Before I go any further, I want to go on record here and say that I like Pete 
I really do. He's a swell guy, but there are two things that have me deeply, perhaps fatally, conflicted in my feelings toward him. The first is that Pete is trying to learn magic. That's an unsightly thing to observe for anyone, but it's particularly gruesome for a professional magician. The other, somewhat larger reason I'm conflicted about Pete is that I'm in love with his wife, Megan. Which really isn't his fault, but there you go. And although I can fall back on the excuse that they're getting a divorce and all's fair in love and war, the truth is, I had no idea they were getting a divorce when I first started to fall for her. If it makes any difference, for the record, she hardly knows I exist. Come on, pick a card, free choice. Pete held the fan deck closer, swaying his clasped hands from side to side in his sad attempt at what I suspected was intended to be an enticing manner. What are you doing here? I asked, completely mystified. I was having one of those out-of-context experiences. Pete and his soon-to-be ex-wife, Megan, owned the row of shops on the corner of 48th and Chicago that includes Chicago Magic. I'm very used to seeing him around the neighborhood, and I see far too much of him in the shop, but I was completely taken aback to encounter him and his ubiquitous deck of cards here in the caves. I've got a client who owns this place. They're trying to unload it. Interested? He switched effortlessly into realtor mode. I mean, think about it. This place would make a killer magic emporium. Sure, but what would we do with the other 95% of the space? You're probably right. There's way too much square footage here. He pushed the fan cards at me once again. I think I got this sucker nailed finally. Go ahead, pick a card. I acquiesced reluctantly and pulled the card from the center of the fan deck, showing it to Lauren. Now, look at the card, Pete said as he fumbled to square the deck. He glanced up at us. Oh, you already did. Good for you. Well done. Okay, now, remember that card. I want you to put your randomly chosen card back into the deck, anywhere in the deck. This is a free choice that I'm not influencing in any manner whatsoever. He lost track of his sentence as he began to drop the cards in a slow shower from his right hand, which hovered about eight inches above his left. Say stop wherever you like. Stop, I said, trying my best to put a modicum of interest into my voice. He stopped dropping cards from one hand to the other and indicated that I should put the card on top of the messy stack in his left hand. I did, and he then continued to drop the cards in a painfully slow and awkward manner until all of the cards were in his left hand. He struggled to square the cards again, as he said in an overly practiced manner. Now, to keep things fair, I'll cut the cards. Pete executed a sloppy cut followed by a second, even sloppier one. I looked up at Lauren, who was watching with a look of sick fascination on her face. I looked back at Pete, who was attempting to roll the top card off the deck with an awkward thumb and finger flip combination. It was obscene. And here's your card, right? He asked, hopefully, offering the top card for our inspection. Both Lauren and I shook our heads silently. Really? We nodded sadly as Lauren unsnapped the clasp on the makeup bib and pulled it off of me. Pete began to sort through the cards, trying to trace his fatal misstep. I think I screwed up the cut, he said. I think you did, I said as I stood up. I turned to Lauren. Are you done with me? She smiled. Have a good show. Thanks. And keep an open mind? She gave me a quick smile and turned back to her makeup kit repacking materials, and getting ready for her next victim. 
I clapped Pete on the shoulder and turned him toward the archway that led to the foyer. Come on, Houdini. You can watch the show with me. I must have screwed up the cut, he repeated as we headed out of one cavern and into another. Excuse me, they said up front that Mr. Marks could be found back there. Did you happen to see him? The question was tossed at us by a costumed character who looked a whole lot like the Mad Hatter without the hat. The eccentric character tossed his question over his shoulder as he marched purposefully past us. Pete and I were headed back through the foyer and toward the main room where the last of the crowd was taking their seats. The fellow with the question wore a rich purple tailcoat and colorful plaid pants cut in a style popular back in the late 1970s. This ensemble was accessorized with a paisley silk scarf tied snugly around his neck. He was tall, thin, and long-legged with an angular face and wild hair that must have been tinted at some point in the past as I could detect a trace of blue in it as he moved past us. If you're looking for Mr. Marks, that's me. I said. He stopped in his tracks about ten feet from us and turned, tilting his head to one side curiously. Interesting, he said, in what was either a British accent or a deep-seated affectation. I don't know why, but for some reason I expected you to be much older. I was, I said. I mean, my Uncle Harry was going to do this show when they booked it last summer, but I'm filling in for him. I stepped forward, closing the gap between us, and put out my hand. I'm Eli Marks. He returned the handshake like a man new to the concept, but certainly enthusiastic about it. Clive Albans, he said, almost bowing. I was hoping I would have a chance to speak with you either this evening or at some later point for an article I'm doing for the London Times. Sure, I said. What's the article about? I'm doing an expose on charlatan psychics and mentalists, frauds, fakers, freaks, that sort of thing. My understanding was that you, actually your uncle, is a bit legendary in the field of debunking. I'd love to include the perspective of the professional debunker if I could. I bit my tongue deciding I would correct him on the use of the term during the actual interview. Sure, I said. No problem. Brilliant, he said, turning to follow us as we continued toward the main room. The three of us stood in the archway for a moment, marveling at all the costumed attendees, a truly exotic turnout. I heard Clive cluck his tongue loudly as he looked around the room. These people, he said, shaking his head slowly from side to side as he jotted illegibly in a small notebook. They look ridiculous. Pete and I exchanged a glance, but kept our mouths shut. Okay, folks, we're going live in five minutes the smiling television host told the assembled audience from his position near the front of the stage. The host wore his usual get-up, a tweed sport coat with a plaid scarf, but for once the scarf made sense in the crisp, cool, constant 55 degrees of the caves. The floor manager gestured at him, and he looked down at the small stack of index cards in his hand as if he'd forgotten he was holding them. Oh, Yes, he said. I've been asked to remind you of a couple of housekeeping notes. So, how many people here have ever been to the Vatican? You know the one in Rome? The apparent non-sequitur produced some puzzled looks throughout the crowd. A few audience members raised their hands tentatively. Okay, good, a few of you, the host continued. 
Well, for the rest of you, when you go to the Vatican and visit the Sistine Chapel, which my wife and I did about five years ago, just stunning. Don't miss it. Get in line early. That sucker fills up quickly. They tell you the moment you enter the chapel that you're not allowed to touch the walls. Da Vinci or Michelangelo or whoever it was who did all the painting in there, he did the whole thing, walls and ceilings, just stunning. And they don't want you to touch the walls because apparently they don't want the oils from your skin to get on the painting. Well, he said, unaware that the audience didn't have a clue what he was talking about. The same is true here in the caves, but for a slightly different reason. I've been asked to request that you don't touch the walls in here because they're made of sandstone and are very soft. They say that it doesn't take much to damage them, so hands off the walls, he added a laugh to emphasize the point and then flipped through his index cards for his next housekeeping note. Also, be sure to get your questions into the crystal bowl. Where's the bowl? The floor manager gestured toward the bowl, which was at the host's feet. He grinned broadly and pointed at the bowl. Yes, there's the bowl. You need to get your questions for Gray into this bowl before the start of the show. They tell me there's paper, pens, and envelopes up here and also on a table in the back of the room. Is that right? He looked to the floor manager for confirmation, received a quick nod, and continued with his pre-show warm-up. An audio engineer had found me and was in the process of clipping a wireless lavalier microphone to my sport coat. I ran the cord under my shirt and slid the small transmitter he handed me into my back pocket. So, what's going on here tonight? Pete whispered as the TV host cracked some more jokes and gave the audience a few more final instructions. Pete still held the deck of cards in his hands, which he fingered badly in what looked to be his sad attempt at a double lift. The local PBS station is doing a live remote as part of their weekly local news magazine show. It's a special Halloween show, I explained. They got a psychic medium who's going to perform, and then, in the name of fairness or something, they want to bring me on. The voice of the opposition, Clive suggested. Something like that, I agreed. So who's the psychic, Pete asked. That performer named Gray, Clive answered before I could. He double-checked his notes. Yes, that's it, Gray. Pete looked at Clive quizzically. Gray what? Clive shrugged. Just Gray he said as he paged through his notes. Apparently he goes by only the one name, you know, like Cher, Liberace, Bono. Do you know him? he asked me. Vaguely, I said, and then turned to Pete. You may know him better by his former name. Walter Grabowski? A dim look of recognition crossed Pete's face. Now that you mention it, that does sound familiar. Wasn't he a realtor? For years. Clive tapped me on the shoulder and I answered his question before he could ask it. In Britain, you call them estate agents. He gave me a nod of thanks and continued making notes in his small notepad. And now he's a psychic? Pete asked. If you listen to his version of the truth, he'll tell you that he's always had the gift. But in reality, he was your garden variety realtor for years. And then he started to get the reputation of being, shall we say, friendly to a fringe audience. Friendly to fringe audiences. Interesting, Clive asked. Define, please. Well, if you were a witch or warlock who wanted to mark a property before you bought it by urinating around the circumference of the house, for example, Gray was the type of realtor who would happily look the other way, I explained quietly. Or if you felt the need to perform a nude cleansing of a space before you put in an offer, Gray was your guy. 
In some instances, I added, I understand he was more than willing to strip down and join in. Then, after a while, he discovered that he could make more money doing readings instead of doing real estate. So he made the switch to the psychic dodge full-time. You can make more money as a psychic than a realtor? Pete asked, his voice cracking as he attempted to whisper. A crew member turned toward us and signaled that less talking would be preferred. I smiled at her, then turned and gave Pete a knowing smile as well. I considered adding a few more words to the topic, but at that moment, the lights began to dim in the cavern as other lights grew brighter on the stage. The host looked directly into one of the large video cameras positioned in front of the stage and announced, Yes, folks, we're coming to you live from the Wabashaw Caves. It's Halloween, and we've got a spooky treat for our audience here and for all of you at home. Please put your hands together for the one, the only, Gray. And then, without warning, The lights went out, plunging the room into darkness. Okay, that was not John Gaspard reading a sample chapter from book one of the Eli Marks Mysteries, The Ambitious Card. That was actually narrator Jim Cunningham reading that, and uh, what a fantastic job he does. Hey, don't forget to click the link in the show notes to find out more about John and all of the wonderful books that he has available to you. Get on over and check out the podcast. Don't forget to also click the link in the show notes for our podcast friends, our sponsor, and our affiliate alike. And hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next time when I'm back with an all-new author, a new book, and a brand new sample chapter. Take care, everybody. We'll see you then. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.